Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so let's get into it. We do have a couple of obituaries to start us off with. From the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Start off with this one. Stephen Allen Levine. Uh, March 23rd, 1946 to January 16, 2023, author unknown. He had a wicked sense of humor and lit up every room. Born and raised in Los Angeles, the son of Vivian and boxer George Levine, owners of the Black, uh, Black Life uh, Bar, Steve was the Viscount at Hamilton High School, where he played basketball and went on to play football at the University of Arizona. After college, he was a sports DJ in Reno, as well as a bartender at his parents' bar and the sports page. He then found his way into a successful real estate career that spanned 40-plus years, but was so much more than just an agent, as he became dear friends with all of his clients. He worked with his daughter, Jennifer, for the last 17 years at Hilton plus Highland, and recently joined Car uh, Cardwood Partners. Steve married his first wife, Terry Mandel, in 1970, whom he was married to for 22 years and raised their daughter, Jennifer, together. An avid sportsman, he coached the Beverly Hills Little League for years, with a passion, was a passionate golfer and awesome tennis player, all the while establishing himself as a top agent at the Asher Dan & Associates. They divorced when their daughter left to go to college in San Francisco. He then married his second wife, Jamie Nugent. They divorced after 10 years. However, Steve remained close with both Terry and Jamie. Steve was the funniest, most clever advocate and friend. His sharp wit and impenetrable charm could disarm anyone, anywhere. He always rooted for the underdog and was the utmost supporter of his friends, colleagues, and family. That was Stephen Allen Levine, March 23, 1946 to January 16, 2023, author unknown. This other one is Anita H. Levinson, February 2, 1934 to January 16, 2023, author unknown. Anita Levinson, nay Settleson, died peacefully at home. She is survived by her husband, Burton, her children, Ellen Levinson and Doug Levinson, and her grandchildren, Rachel Karras, Kelsey Levinson, and Trevor Levinson. She's also survived by her brother, Mr. Kenneth Settleson. She is predeceased by her daughter, Sherry Levinson, and her brother, Matt Settleson. Anita took great pride in Ellen's accomplishments. As an attorney, Ellen dedicated her legal career to public service and to political and philanthropic co uh, commitments. As a proud grandmother, Anita was thrilled to see both her oldest granddaughter, Rachel, accomplish her lofty academic goals and to see her younger granddaughter, Kelsey, well on her way to becoming a doctor. She also enjoyed watching her grandson, Trevor, grow into manhood. Anita was born in Akron, Ohio, the daughter of Edwin and Beatrice Settleson. Anita was a full-time partner to her husband, and not only was she a motivator in much of what, she, what he accomplished, but, in fact, an inspiration. Volunteerism was in Anita's blood. She dedicated over a thousand hours to the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center as a volunteer. She was actively involved in the Soviet Jewry movement in Los Angeles and testified before a congressional committee on behalf of the movement. She also participated in several philanthropic organizations. Anita 
was very proud of her Jewish heritage and considered herself to be a patriot. She was honored to be an American. The funeral services will be private. That was Anita H. Levinson, February 2nd, 1934 to January 16, 2023, author unknown. And those are from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Okay, we go on to this from the nation section of the Los Angeles Times, uh, Saturday, January 14, 2023. U.S. to hit debt limit Thursday, Yellen warns. Treasury Secretary urges Congress to act less extraordinary measures be, uh, be required to avoid default by Fatima Hussein. Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen notified Congress on Friday that the U.S. is projected to reach its debt limit Thursday and will then resort to extraordinary measures to, default account, uh, to avoid default. In a letter to House and Senate leaders, Yellen said her actions will buy time until Congress can pass legislation that will either raise the nation's $31.4 trillion borrowing authority or suspend it for a period of time. But she said it's a critical, it's a critical that uh, Congress said in a timely manner. Failure to meet the government's obligations would cause irreparable damage to the U.S. economy, the livelihoods of all Americans, and global financial stability, she said. In the past, even threats that the U.S. government might fall, fail to meet its obligations have caused real harms, including the only credit rating downgrade in the history of our nation in 2011, she said. Yellen was referring to the debt ceiling impasse during Barack Obama's presidency, when Republicans also had just won a House majority. In this new Congress, the debt ceiling debate will almost certainly trigger a political shutdown between newly empowered GOP lawmakers who now control the House and want to cut spending, and President Biden and Democratic lawmakers who had one-party control of Washington for the last two years. The White House has insisted that it won't allow the nation's credit to be held captive to the demands of Republican lawmakers. We have seen both Republicans and Democrats come together to deal with this issue, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters Friday. It is one of the basic items that Congress has to deal with, and it should be uh, done without conditions. The debt ceiling applies to previous spending, but House GOP leaders liken it to a credit card limit and have only said they would raise it if only if paired with a, with a spending overhaul. New House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield, told reporters in his first news conference that he had a very good conversation with Biden about the debt ceiling issue. We don't want to put any fiscal problems in, uh, to, uh, to our economy, and we won't, but fiscal problems would be continuing to do business as usual, he said. We've got to change the way we are spending money. McCarthy has floated the kind of budget cap deal that was engineered in the last go-round on the debt ceiling during the Trump administration, which would involve capping federal spending levels in return for the House votes needed to raise the debt limit. But any effort to uh, compromise with House Republicans could force Biden to bend on his own priorities, such as money for the IRS to ensure that wealthier Americans pay what they owe or domestic programs for children and the poor. Senate Ma uh, Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer and new House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries 
both New York Democrats, said in a joint statement Friday that a default forced by extreme MAGA Republicans could plunge the country into a deep recession and lead to even higher costs for America's working families on everything from mortgages and car loans to credit card interest rates. They noted that the two parties worked together to increase the debt limit, tree, uh, limit three times when Trump was president, and Republicans had majorities in the House and the Senate. This time should be no different, their statement said. Although Treasury can't estimate how long the extraordinary measures will allow the U.S. to continue to pay the government's obligations, Yellen said it is unlikely that cash and extraordinary measures will be exhausted before early June. Shai Akabas, director of economic policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center, told reporters Friday that this is not the time for panic, but it is certainly a time for policymakers to begin negotiations in earnest. Most policymakers agree that we have a major, a major fiscal challenge as a country. Our debt is unsustainable, he said, and there is no reason why we couldn't agree on measures to improve our fiscal outcome and also ensure that we are paying all of our bills in full and on time. Treasury first used the used extraordinary measures in 1985 and has used them at least 16 times since, according to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, a fiscal watchdog. Those measures include divesting some uh, payments, such as contributions to federal employees' retirement plans, to provide headroom to make other payments deemed essential, including those for Social Security and debt instruments. Past uh, for, uh, forecasts suggest a default could instantly bury the country in a deep recession, right at a moment of slowing global growth as the U.S. and much of the world face high inflation because of the pandemic and Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. The financial markets could crash and several millions workers could be laid off. The aftershocks could be felt for years. Moody's analytics called this risk cataclysmic in a 2021 forecast before previous debt ceiling increase, suggesting that the resulting chaos would be due to government dysfunction rather than the underlying condition of the U.S. economy. There was U.S. to hit debt limit Thursday yelling warrants by Patrick Hus Fatima Hussein from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times Saturday, January 14, 2023. Hussein writes for the Associated Press. All right, and here's something else from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, January 15, 2023. Forever changed by Texas synagogue hostage ordeal. A year later, trauma remains for survivors and congregation. By Bobby Ross Jr. Colleyville, Texas. A year ago, Jeff Cohen and three others survived a hostage standoff at their Reform Jewish synagogue in this Fort Worth suburb. Their trauma did not disappear, though, with the FBI's killing of their pistol-wielding captor, 44-year-old British national Malik Faisal Akram. Healing from the January 15, 2022 ordeal remains an ongoing process. Let's be blunt. We're healing. We're not healed, said Cohen, 58, a Lockheed Martin engineer who serves as president of Congregation Beth Israel and his 140 family membership. The 10-hour standoff ended at about 9 p.m. that Saturday as the remaining hostages, including Cohen, escaped and the FBI's tactical team gunned down Akram. The violence left the synagogue with broken doors and windows shattered glass and windows shattered glass and bullet holes. 
Within three months, repairs had been made and the congregation returned. But one year later, deep wounds still fester. We have a lot of people who are still feel, feeling it bad, Cohen said as two fellow hostages, Lawrence Schwartz and Shane Woodward, nodded in a group interview at the, at the synagogue. We have parents who aren't very comfortable bringing their kids to Sunday school. We're forever changed, she added. We've had to get used to having security here all the time. The recent surge in anti-Semitic rhetoric and incidents nationally has intensified both the congregation's trauma and its resolve to move forward without fear, said Anna Salton Eisen, a founder of the, of the synagogue and other books about the, her parents' survival of the Holocaust. After the hostage crisis, I'm inspired to go out and try to use this, along with the Holocaust, as an inspiration to fight hate, Eisen said. It all started with a knock at the door on a cold, windy Saturday. A man who appeared homeless showed up outside Beth Israel. The stranger immediately uh, unsettled Schwartz, 87, who was helping Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker prepare for the morning Shabbat service. He said, I don't like this, recalled Shabbat, a retired accountant who helped lead security for his previous synagogue. I said, Charlie, don't open the door. He went ahead and opened it. The temperature, however, hovered near freezing, and the wind made it feel even colder. Sutton Walker showed the stranger his compassion, as his Jewish faith called him to do, and invited Akram inside. They chatted, and the rabbi made him tea. Akram had spent time in Dallas-area homeless shelters, but the cold wasn't why he wanted to come into the synagogue. I had no indication that he was that he was intending to do us harm until I heard the click of a gun, which was an hour after I met him, said Citron Walker, 47, who had served at Beth Israel for 16 years. That click came about 11 a.m. as Citron Walker prayed facing the front of the sanctuary. The weather and the COVID-19 pandemic made for a light in-person crowd that day. While an unknown number watched online, uh, just three, beside the rab three besides the rabbi came in, came in person, Cohen, Schwartz, and Woodward, who, had a, who arrived a few minutes later. Woodward, 47, listened to the first part of the service via Zoom on his drive to the synagogue. He heard Citron Walker mention the guest. After arriving and taking a seat, Woodward noticed Akram. I did hear a lot of fidgeting going on. He was kind of rustling around the bag there, Woodward said. I waved to him, and he was very polite. He waved back. He smiled, nodded. We were in the middle of praying when it happened. During the standoff, Akram demanded that uh, demanded the release of a Pakistani woman serving a lengthy prison sentence in Fort Worth after being convicted of trying to kill the U.S. troops. The hostages said Akram cited anti-Semitic stereotypes, believing that Jews wield the kind of power that could get the woman released. At CBI with a gunman, Cohen pro uh, posted on Facebook, If I don't get out, remember me. Fight hate. Schwartz appear, apparently reminded Akram of his father, and the gunman started calling him Dad at one, at one point. He, uh, at one point, he got his captor's permission to use the restroom. He said, I'll let you go. But if you don't come back, I'm going to kill these three guys, Schwartz said. About six hours into the standoff, his fellow hostages told Schwartz, who has hearing problems, to leave. He didn't understand at first, but they had talked Akram into releasing him. Initially, Schwartz was upset. He didn't want to leave them behind, but later realized they stood a better chance without him. I'm not able to move very fast, Schwartz said. They could run, but not me. 
Woodward grew up uh, Baptist, but was in the process of converting to Judaism. As the stand-up dragged on, he remarked, Rabbi, I'm still converting. There's no guarantee that we were getting out of there, and this is what was going through his mind, Citrus Walker said with a chuckle. Jeff turned around and said, What? Since we all got out, it's really one of the humorous moments. Hours later, Akram was becoming more agitated. The hostages' fears uh, that he would shoot them increased. He was yelling at the negotiator, and when he hung up, he got really calm, Citron Walker said. He turned to us, and I thought that we were going to die. He asked, for some ju asked us for some juice. After Citron Walker walked to the kitchen, Akram decided he wanted a soda instead. The rabbi returned with a can of soda and a plastic cup. That's when the chance to escape came. He was holding onto the liquid with one hand, Citron Walker said. For the first time all day, he did not have his hand on the trigger. The rabbi yelled, Run! and threw a chair at Akram. They escaped through a side door. Simultaneously and unknown to the hostages, the FBI team entered the building to attempt a rescue. Like the rabbi, the authorities were concerned about Akram's state of mind. The hostages say Akram attempted to shoot at them as they ran, but that his pistol misfired. I know God was with us, Woodward said. Before the standoff, Citron Walker had already interviewed for a new job as rabbi at Temple Emmanuel in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The hostage crisis delayed that process, but he started his new job in July. Even 1,100 miles away, the events of January 15 continued to impact almost every aspect of my life, he said. From the, his sermon topics to his speaking engagements on anti-Semitism to his recent opportunity to light the menorah at the White House's Hanukkah reception, the hostage crisis figures heavily, Citron Walker said. I'm not having nightmares or anything that would resemble PTSD, he said. I never know if that could come up at some point in time, but I'm very thankful that, that it hasn't as of yet. A year later, the hostages urged the other house, houses of worship to take security training seriously. Citron Walker credits it with getting out safely. But next time, Schwartz said, he would act on his concern and call 911. I don't care if the congregation wants to throw me out. I don't care if the rabbi never wants to talk to me again, said Schwartz, who now wears a custom-made yarmulke with the message stronger than hate on it. it should, I should have operated on my thoughts, and I didn't. But Citron Walker said he does not regret abiding by his faith. He looked like he was a homeless man, and I continue to live with the fact that I was fooled, he said. We have to be able to live our values even when they're hard. That was forever changed by Texas Synagogue Hostage Ordeal by Bobby Ross Jr. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 15, 2023. Ross writes for the Associated Press. And now shifting back home to here to L.A., a familiar leader is leading the Board of Education. From the California section, the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 18, 2023, Goldberg again to lead school board. New president, who held the job 40 years ago, is elected amid tense labor talks by Howard Bloom. Jackie Goldberg, who, serves on, who served on the Los Angeles Board of Education president 40 years ago and also served on the L.A. City Council and in the state legislature, was elected president again Tuesday and said over her, her overriding goal is to double down on academics so students are achieving at grade level by 5th or 6th grade. 
Her election also signals a potential school board majority shift to priorities of the teachers' union amid increasingly contentious contract negotiations with it and the district's service workers' union. In an interview, Goldberg said that, as always, she's in the job for the sake of students, not to do the bidding of any special interests. She said she will work to recover the losses of academic achievement for the kids. We need to be doubling down on how we get to them at, to be at the grade level by 5th or 6th grade so that they don't end up dropping out by the time they get to high school. Goldberg represents District 5, which represents most of the northeast part, including Eagle Rock, Gla uh, Glasgow Park, and Echo Park. To the southeast, her district includes the cities of Huntington Park, Maywood, and Southgate. Goldberg articulated uh, her academic emphasis in the wake of the state test score data that showed alarming setbacks in academic achievements since the COVID-19 pandemic. State test results showed about 72% of students do not meet state standards in math and about 58% do not meet standards in English. The elevation of Goldberg, who came out of semi-retirement to run and win a return on the board in 2019, represents an early marker of success for the United Teachers Los Angeles Union. In November school board elections, in the November school board elections, the teachers' union-endorsed candidate Rocio Rivas replaced Monica Garcia, who was part of a faction that the union had opposed. Garcia could not run again because of term limits. Rivas finished ahead of Maria Brenas, who was backed by Garcia, and presented herself as a neutral player in the political battles of the nation's second-largest school system. The teachers' union-backed candidates now holds a majority of the seven seats. Board members joined together for a unanimous 6-0 tally for Goldberg with outgoing President Kelly Gonia's absence. Goldberg said it also uh, will be, be her job to look out for the needs of all employees. I consider all our employees important, she said. I think our classified employees need our particular attention. The soonest coalition co uh, collision course with labor could be with Local 19 of Services Employee International Union, which represents the largest number of non-teaching or classified employees, including bus drivers, cafeteria workers, custodians, and teachers' aides. Local 99 has declared an impasse in negotiations and scheduled a strike authorization vote from Monday through fe uh, February 10. If a potential strike is approved, as expected, union leaders would have the authority to call a strike at their discretion. The teachers' union is not as far along in the negotiation process, even though its contract expires in July. The school board, including Goldberg, has so far stood publicly united behind Superintendent Alberto Carvalho in negotiations and policies. Both major unions are, called, are calling for significant pay increases to offset inflation and the high cost of living in Southern California. Although the vote of each board member has the same impact, the president chairs the meeting, uh, helps set uh, helps set the agenda and frequently acts as a spokesperson for the board and district. In remarks after the voting, Goldberg said she will add two non-voting subcommittees of board members, one on the procurement and facilities and another on climate and greening. She said she wants the board committees to be 
more in tune with making changes, suggesting suggested changes to the superintendent and his staff on policy issues, rather than having us be mostly hearing wonderful information, but not actually taking steps. One unknown leading into leading into Tuesday's vote for president was whether Goldberg even wanted the job. Goldberg, 78, said she had to reflect before taking on the commitment, adding it was a challenge for her family members to accept it. She said a main difference between the, the school board and the 1980s and 90s boards she served on is that her current colleagues are more amiable and the district's financial picture, while challenging, is better than it was then. The board elected Scott Schmerlson as vice president, replacing Nick Melvoin. That was Goldberg again to lead school board by Howard Bloom from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 18, 2023. All right, now here's one from the uh, weekend section of the Los Angeles Times going back a little ways, Sunday, November 13th, 2022. This was actually brought to my attention fairly recently. This is called Through the Grapevine. I drove down from the Bay Area to be set up by my aunt, by Shanti L. Nelson. She lures me to L.A. with the promise of a suitor, not just one, but a multitude of hand-picked, middle-aged, maybe divorced, probably Jewish, and most certainly bitter bachelors. Santa Monica's teeming with good men your age. I didn't get that memo. Her daily spiel is aggressive, peppered with enticing sound bites meant to convince me that migrating south is the key to finding love. You're almost 50. You'll end up joining an ashram if you stay up there. As the matriarch of our Southern California tribe, she still believes that the Bay Area is nothing but tree-hugging hippies who wear white after Labor Day and wouldn't know a good Jewish rye from a, a loaf of sourdough if it hit them on their Birkenstocks. I'm barely over the grapevine, and she's blowing up my phone with a succession of one-liners via text. He has most of his hair, he lives west of the 405, and he has a good therapist. Most of his hair? I inch my way south of the 405 freeway, exiting on Sunset Boulevard, and bam! She tosses out a fresh batch of text grenades. You're meeting him tonight. Don't wear heels, and whatever you do, don't take sunsets. Damn it, she's right. Sunset is gridlocked. My Aunt Sandy, then 80, is a native Angelino who texts like a teenager and navigates the west side like a New York taxi driver on speed. She appointed herself matchmaking commander-in-chief after my mom died, managing my skeptical, still single, and approaching 50 dossier with the fortitude of 10 Jewish grandmothers and one huge caveat, that I moved to L.A. Meeting him tonight? I'm exhausted, wired from flavored creamers and gas station coffee, and covered in the plethora of snacks I've consumed on the drive from the Bay Area. Is she serious? I've been looking forward to noshing and drinking my way through the Planned Parenthood L.A. food fair. After a last barrage of texts, I'm growing increasingly wary of her matchmaking skills, but I'm in too deep to turn back. Sandy spent the last three months talking uh, this guy up with his with shiny adjectives meant to suggest his resemblance to John Hamm. Hmm, I'm beginning to think she's never seen Mad Men. Michael will meet you at the entrance. I gave him your number. Don't forget to mention you'd like to swim. His mom, he said, his mom said he wants to get back into shape. Back into shape? What happened? 
24 hours ago, I was meeting a John Hamm lookalike, and now I'm scanning the crowd for a short, bobbling, overweight man. Shanty, Michael greets me with a warm handshake, and despite the woven man purse slung over his plump midsection, I'm pleasantly relieved. I'm too tired to make small talk, so I cut to the chase. I just drove straight here from the Bay Area. I'm starving and need some wine, I say. This is the part where he could have told me that he's vegan, doesn't drink, and is allergic to most anything edible. But he doesn't. I'm busy indulging my way through every microbite. He trails behind me. So there's really no, uh, no meat in this? What about dairy? Fish? How about eggs? Gluten? I'm one heavenly bite into a mini eclair, and he shoots me a judgmental glare. I don't eat refined sugar. Good grief. How was the date? Sandy asked her. Asked later. He's vegan. He's what? Vegan. Don't didn't you, didn't you know that? I don't even know what that means. Maybe that's why he's in therapy. It means that he doesn't eat animal products. Oh, he's a vegetarian. What's wrong with that? You can't be too picky at your age. No, he's vegan. There's nothing wrong with it, and he seems nice, but we're not really food compatible. There's such a long pause that I figured she inadvertently turned uh, down the volume on her hearing aids again. No eggs? Then what does he eat, for God's sake? I'm calling his mother. In lieu of calling Michael's mother and determined to observe his culinary habits in the flesh, Sandy summons me to a 6 p.m. dinner party the following Wednesday. I can smell the fish from her driveway. Uh-oh. What are you making for dinner? Baked salmon and rice. Sandy doesn't eat fish, remember? He's a vegan. Oh, vegan schmegan. One bite won't kill him. Michael arrives shortly after me, presenting Sandy with a small bag he pulls out of his man purse. Dessert from Erwan. Macaroons. Isn't that thoughtful? Who doesn't love a good macaroon, she says. After receiving an urgent text earlier about picking up whipped cream, I'm pretty sure she had made an almond pound cake for dessert. That won't go over well. He politely declines the salmon. She offers him rice. Is there butter in the rice by chance? She stiles for a second as if she's either going to claim a senior moment or lie. Don't do it, Sandy. Don't lie. I'm feeling a hot flash coming on from the stress, so I blurt out a dairy warning. Yes, there's Buddy in there. Okay, I'll just eat salad. She show, she's showing no sign of retreating as she heads back to, toward the kitchen. Great, then you'll have more room for dessert. The pound cake emerges from the kitchen. Michael drops his head and lets out a sigh. Would you mind if we put, uh, put out the macaroons? He starts to get up, but Sandy quickly thwarts his effort, ushering me to follow her into the kitchen. She opens the package of macaroons, popping one in her mouth before muttering, what on earth? She spits it out into her palm. His balls t uh, taste like cardboard. Her hearing aids must have switched off, and her volume is steadily increasing. I'm throwing them into the compost. We burst out laughing as Michael comes into the kitchen. He stares at us, motionless and poker-faced. We're still cackling as he grabs what's left of his vegan macarons and heads for the front door. Sandy hands me a plate of pound cake. That's it. That's it. You can't date a man with no sense of humor, she says. It would never work. That was Through the Grapevine by Shanti L. Nelson from the weekend section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 13, 2022. The author is a writer, a bird watcher, and amateur bagel maker out searching for the sweetest bite. She's on Instagram 
at Shanti L. Nelson. LA Affairs chronicles the search for romantic love in all its glorious expressions in the LA area, and we want to hear your true story. We pay $300 for a published essay. Email LA Affairs at latimes.com. You can find past columns at latimes.com slash LA Affairs. Now let's move on to some entertainment news. Starting with this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 16, 2023. Is Eisenhower worth the field trip? John Rubenstein's earnest performance at Hudson Main Stage Elevates Production by Charles McNulty, theater critic. Living memory of Dwight D. Eisenhower is growing fainter with every year, but Eisenhower, this piece of ground starring a perfectly cast John Rubenstein, brings our 34th president back to life in a straightforward biographical drama that's filled with timely political lessons from a leader who strove to put country over party. The play by Richard Helliston, uh, which uh, had its world premiere in October at uh, Theater West in a presentation created by New LA Repertory Company and is now playing at the Hudson Mainstage Theater wears its earnestness on its sleeve. A whiff of Wikipedia has proved to be no deterrent. The production, directed by Peter Ellenstein, has been extended through January 22nd, and there's even talk of an off-Broadway run. It's heartening to see, an, see audiences flock to a work that takes an educational approach to American history. Uh, citizens still want to learn about their government and their difficult choices their elected officials have been forced to make in response to crises, domestic and foreign. But the main reason to see Eisenhower is the solid performance by Rubenstein, who assumes the role with such concentrated ease that it's as if a figure known to some only through grainy news footage and the term military-industrial complex, which he famously issued as a warning, has been allowed a temporary reprieve from death to talk some sense into a nation that has lost its way. There's a homespun staleness to Rubenstein's portrayal of Ike, who, in the study of his post-presidency home in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, reviews the central episodes of his life. An old-fashioned story, an American, as American as apple pie, the saga begins at the beginning at the sternly loving family center of his boyhood days that led up to his education at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Heroism isn't, in, isn't the point of the survey that follows. The military career of Eisenhower, who served as the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe during World War II, and who attained the five-star rank of general of the army, is discussed in relationship to his work as a politician determined to secure European peace by standing against isolationism and the America First movement. The frame of the play is rudimentary. Uh, Eisenhower is ruining his low ranking in a list of American presidents that a group of 75 historians has derived for a New York Times feature. He decides to tell his own story to set the record straight. There's a formulaic stiffness to this biographical recap, which seems built more around a lesson plan than a dramatic plot. The speechifying tone of the language Helston offers Eisenhower precludes any sense of intimacy. The public man takes precedence over the private one in a production that compounds this effect with a staging that resembles a class exhibit 
or diorama. But Rubenstein, who won a Tony for his performance in Children of a Lesser God, delivers the social studies goods with up, up with aplomb. He deserves a more complex portrait, but delves wholeheartedly into the political conundrums of a president who, in the simple act of owning his own mistakes, sets an important example of the kind of leadership that's in too short supply these days. That was Is Eisenhower Worth the Field Trip by Charles McNulty, theater critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 16, 2023. It's called Eisenhower, This Piece of Ground, at the Hudson Main Stage Theater, 6539 Santa Monica Boulevard in L.A. 8 p.m. Fridays and Saturdays, 3 p.m. Sundays, ends January 22nd, cost $40. Contact onstage-411.com slash Eisenhower or newslarep.org. Running time, 1 hour 55 minutes, including one intermission. And also from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 16, 2022, 23, that is, from Frozen to Redwood, Idina Menzel talks up roles. Inside collaborating with Tina Landau and Katie, Kate Diaz on the telling of a unique story and more by Pam Cragen. Idina Menzel, the Tony-winning star of Wicked and vocal powerhouse behind Elsa in Disney's animated Frozen, was star in Redwood, a world premiere musical that would close uh, La Jolla Playhouse's 23-24 season in February of next year. Redwood will feature a book, lyrics, and direction by Tina Landau, and score and lyrics by Kate Diaz. The musical will tell the story of Jessie, a successful businesswoman, mother and wife, who is hiding a broken heart. Finding herself at a turning point, she leaves everything behind and drives to the West Coast, and uh, where she ends up in California's Redwood Forest and finds community and healing. Christopher Ashley, the Playhouse's artistic director, said in a statement that the musical overflows with invention, inspiration, and empathy. Menzel has been a star since making her Broadway debut in 1996 as performance artist Marine in Rent. Then in 2003, she became a superstar as the high-flying green-skinned witch Elphaba El in Wicked. Aside from Broadway, Menzel has worked on television, in film, and as a songwriter. Diaz is a prolific L.A. composer, songwriter, and producer who writes music for film, television, trailers, and commercials. Landau is a writer and director who conceived and directed the 2018 Broadway musical SpongeBob SquarePants. She also co-wrote the off-Broadway musical Floyd Collins, which had a production at San Diego's Old Globe in 1999 with composer Adam Guttel, La Jolla Playhouse, and also premiered Landau's fairy tale inspired play, Beauty, in 2023. In an email interview Thursday, Menzel talked about Redwood and her collaborations with Landau and Diaz. Question. You probably courted to uh, to do new musicals on the uh, all the time why this one why did this one speak to you answer tina tina and i have been dreaming up a version of this show for many years now it, it it's originally unique it's original unique and embodies everything that is important to me in musical theater it's an opportunity to play a character i don't think we've seen before but we all know very well and it's a different kind of story told in a unique way question you, Kate, and Kate co-wrote the title song 
for the 2022 HBO documentary, A Tree of Life, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. How do you like collaborating with her? Answer, Kate is our composer. Her music is epic and cinematic, as well as intimate, well-crafted songwriting. Soaring melodies or little prayers, all of it feels instinct instinctual to me, and yet I'm challenged in finding uh, new ways to use my voice and access the soul of this character. You've always worked in the past with Tina Landau. Is this a role that she wrote for you? And how long has this uh, project been in development? Answer. I've wanted to work with Tina for as long as I can remember. She's always understood me, and I'm comfortable t uh, taking risks around her. I trust she will always be honest and challenge me while always having my back. That's what great directors do. Tina and I share a love and fascination for the Redwoods. There's a humility and reverence that comes with standing at the foot of these ancient trees, ancient giants. Through the years, our idea of what the piece should be has evolved as we have, as we have evolved. It's very personal for us. We intend on making this an immersive, immediate experience. A story where the audience will experience Jesse's intimate personal journey as well as the grand scale of the Redwoods. It's about connection with nature and each other. Question. What attracted you to the role of Jesse in Redwood? Is there something about her flight in Ca uh, to California's Redwood Forest to rediscover herself, a journey that intrigues you? Answer. I'm always drawn to characters who are fighters. Jesse is someone who has experienced a heartbreaking loss who finds new life and purpose. Redwood will, will conclude a playoff season that begins in June and includes Anna Devere Smith's tennis-themed play, Love All, Jen Freeman, Sonia Taye, and Holland Andrews' dance-infused piece about neurodiversity, Is It Thursday Yet?, Joe Iconis, and Gregory S. Moss, the untitled authorized, unauthorized Hunter S. Thompson musical, Lisa Sane Dring's wrestling-themed play, Sumo, and Babbitt, Joe DiPietro's adaptation of the Sinclair Lewis novel, featuring film and Broadway star Matthew Broderick. For more, visit at LaHoyaPlayhouse.org. That was from Frozen to Redwood, Idina Menzel Talks Up Roles by Pam Cragen, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 16, 2023. Cragen writes for the San Diego Union-Tribune. All right, this next one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 18, 2023. Disney buys back at activist shareholder. The company says Nelson Peltz's proxy fight bid, backed by a Marvel chair, lacks strategies and ideas, by Ryan Founder. The Walt Disney Company has come out swinging against activist shareholder Nelson Peltz's campaign to join the company's board of directors, saying the billionaire lacks a basic understanding of the entertainment giant's business and has offered no strategic ideas. Disney, in a shareholder presentation published Tuesday, blasted Peltz and defended the leadership of Chief Executive Bob Iger and his landmark acquisitions, including 21st Century Fox, arguing that such deals transformed the company. At the same time, Disney revealed that Peltz's entreaties to the company had the backing of a high-profile and sharp-elbowed personality uh, within its firm, Marvel Entertainment Chairman Isaac Ike Perlmutter. Nelson Peltz's 
Nelson Peltz does not understand Disney's business and lacks the skills and expertise to assist the board in delivering shareholder value in a rapidly shifting media ecosystem, Disney said in its presentation. Peltz has no track record in large-cap media or tech, no solutions to offer for the evolving media landscape. Peltz, 80, has been meeting with Disney executives and board members for months to gain a seat on the Burbank Company's board of directors, but his overtures have been rebuffed. He's now trying to get himself elected by Disney shareholders who will vote at the up company's upcoming annual meeting. A date has not been announced. Peltz, known for proxy fights with companies including Procter & Gamble, last week disclosed his effort to gain a board seat and pressure Disney to correct what he calls self-inflicted problems at the company amid its poor stock performance. He listed his grievances on a website called RestoreTheMagic.com. Chiefly, he criticized Disney for a streaming strategy that has struggled to reach profitability, a poor track record at succession planning, and a $71.3 billion acquisition of Fox assets that saddled the firm with substantial debt. He said he wants the company to go back to paying shareholder dividends by fiscal year 2025. Peltz, who runs the New York investment firm Treon Partners, has 9.4 million shares of Disney stock, worth about $900 million. On January 11, Disney uh, preempted Peltz's fight by naming former Nike chief executive Mark Parker its next chairman, replacing business leader Susan Arnold, who was termed out after 15 years on the board. Disney recommended that investors vote against Peltz and instead support its own 11 nominees. In its Tuesday rebuke to Peltz, Disney fired back at suggestions that Iger overpaid Rupert Murdoch for Fox, touting the franchises and executive talent that joined the company through the 2019 deal. Those include James Cameron's, Cameron's Avatar movies, and The X-Men, The Simpsons, control of streamer Hulu, Oscar-winning specialty film Armed Searchlight, and TV executives Dana Walden and John Landgraf, all of which better position Disney for the industry's shift to a direct-to-consumer business model. Disney Plus, launched in November 2019, has grown rapidly making the company one of its most formidable rivals to streaming giant Netflix. Disney Plus has 164.2 million subscribers. Netflix has 223 million. However, the streaming business has increasingly come under question from Wall Street media analysts skeptical of the degree to which subscription revenues can replace cash lost from traditional television and movies. Disney noted, that Iger's previous acquisitions of Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm had all proved doubters wrong, although those three deals were much smaller than uh, the purchase of Fox. Moreover, Disney challenged Peltz's anal analysis of its performance, saying the company has delivered shareholder returns of 554% during Iger's 15-year reign that began in 2005, outpacing the S&P 500 and rivals in the legacy media sector. Recent struggles can be partly attributed to the COVID-19 pandemic, which hobbled the company's movie studio and parks business and accelerated the industry's streaming pivot. 
Feltz began reaching out to Disney executives in July, starting with a lunch with then-Chief Executive Bob Chapek at Disneyland Paris, according to regulatory filings. According to Disney's timeline, Peltz's effort was supported by a Perlmutter who wanted the company to consider adding Peltz to the board. Just days after the initial meeting, Perlmutter called Chappick, Disney Chief fi Financial Officer Christine McCarthy, and board member Safra Katz to advocate for Peltz's inclusion. Perlmutter, according to Disney, said having Peltz in the fold would help Mr. Chappick uh, counter recent headwinds he had faced, solidifying uh, solidify his position as CEO and preempt any other potential shareholder nominations from of director of director nominees. According to Disney's filing, Perlmutter said that without Mr. Peltz there, former executives, including Mr. Iger, would be back at Disney. Perlmutter, once Marvel's chief executive, is now a major Disney shareholder. His role at Marvel was diminished in 2015 when Disney had Marvel Studios head Kevin Feige, the architect of Marvel's lucrative film strategy, report to Disney studio boss Alan Horn instead of Perlmutter. But Chapek's position was far from solid. The board fired him in November and brought back Iger as chief executive for a two-year term. Parker is expected to chair a board committee dedicated to finding a successor for Iger, considering both internal and external candidates. Since his return, Iger has made a number of changes at Disney, including a restructuring effort in the name of restoring power to the company's creative leaders. Layoffs are expected amid a broader effort to cut costs. Disney confirmed that its board had met with Peltz on January 10 for a presentation of his analysis of Disney's business, but found it wanting. Peltz, in his version of events, said he was offered a role as a board observer, though not as a, board, uh, a voting member. The company disputed Peltz's contention, saying he had actually been invited into more of an informational information-sharing arrangement. Mr. Peltz had not, and the Tryon group uh, representatives at the meeting had not actually presented a single strategic idea for Disney that their asset of Disney assessment of Disney seemed oblivious to the secular change that had been ongoing in the media industry, as well as the impact of the pandemic on each part of the company's business fr uh, from production to exhibition to leisure travel, Disney said in a proxy statement. That was Disney Fires Back at Activist Shareholder by Ryan Founder. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 18, 2023. All right, and now we got this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 19, 2023. New depths from Mahler's Ninth. L.A. Phil and Pacific Symphony lend different perspectives to the masterpiece. By Mark Swed, music critic. Mahler's Ninth Symphony, the last work he completed, and his most personal does and does not go gentle into the good night. He wrote it following the death of his young daughter and after learning of his heart disease diagnosis, which turned out to be fatal. The result is an abstract symphony that contains his deepest and most endearing last thoughts. Death has, on placid cat paws, entered the room. I wrote of this fantastic effort Michael Tilson Thomas achieved when he began a memorable performance of this ninth with the, ninth, uh, with the San Francisco Symphony at Walt Disney Concert Hall in 2005. 
Many years later at Disney, this last Sunday afternoon, Tilson Thomas conducted Mahler's ninth with uh, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, ending the second of his two weeks with the orchestra. No cat's placid pause this time. The symphony begins uh, like, it, like life itself does. First, a small hint of the in the cello's emulate tiny emulate a tiny heartbeat barely heard. A melody gradually evolves note by note in the strings. A horn responds fondly, looking on at on at new life. Tilson Thomas uh, savored all. His tempo was more patient than it had been 18 years earlier. The orchestra, simultaneously transparent yet extravagantly luxuri luxuriant, produced a richly textured sound with such presence that you felt like you could reach out and touch it. At 107 minutes, it was an unusually slow performance, but one allowing full time for extreme swings of emotion from a ravishing smelling of the roses to outbursts of untempered angst. Tilson Thomas showed unflinching patience, always gently guiding Mahler back to profound peace. There are as many ways to perform and listen to the ninth as there are performances and listeners. Again, like life itself, and like only the most significant and meaningful art can convey, the symphony has an essence too mysterious and momentous to be fully revealed. It can never be taken lightly, and in my experience, the L.A. Phil never has. Although labeled the Columbia Symphony for contractual reasons, the L.A. Phil players recorded the ninth in 1961, led by Bruno Walter, who had premiered the symphony the, the year after Mahler's death a, a half a century earlier. The recording is said to have launched the modern, the modern Mahler revival. The first L.A. Phil, uh, Phil Mahler, nine, and my first as well, in 1969, was a solemn performance by the British Mahlerian John Barbatrolli a few months before his death. Carla Maria Giuliani's 1975 performance was so moving that it generated false rumors that the Italian conductor must himself have been dying. Zubin Mehta and Simon Rattle produced vital, life-affirming ninths. Esapeka Salunen's progressive ninth brilliantly revealed just how much Mahler's last testament was also to a new map for where music might and did go in the 20th century. An audacious 29-year-old Gustavo Dudamel began 2011 by conducting his first ninth in the second season as L.A. Phil music director and then boldly took it on his first European tour with the orchestra. Tilson Thomas has now added something new and different that cannot be put into words. Numbers didn't sound like an interpretation. He let Mahler be. That is not to say that Tilson Thomas didn't impose his will or that he left his ego and his dressing at his dressing room. His was not only an expert display of conducting, but also a demonstration of what might be called the loving gaze of Mahler in all its magnificent contradictions. The symphony is often represented as one of the most revealing portrayals of the psychological process of finding peace, as all that is put together in the symphony, its very uh, life force fin finally, finally comes to its natural end while slowly diminishing in silence. Not a silence, though, of nothingness, but rather one of somethingness, the equivalent of white light that contains all colors. 
Mahler becomes, at the end, one with the universe. The weekend proved exceptional. Mahler, uh, ninth wise, uh, in another way, uh, just as L.A. Phil had at Disney, the Pacific Symphony at the Rene and Henry Siegerstrom Concert Hall devoted its three weekend concerts to Mahler's Ninth as well. Attending the Saturday night performance made possible the rare opportunity to catch two major Mahler Ninth performances in less than 24 hours. The Orange County Orchestra may not have quite the resources of the L.A. Phil, no orchestra in America does, but its music director, Carl St. Clair has been a devoted Mahlerian throughout his 33 years as music director of an orchestra he elevated to significance. And he happens to be on a Mahler 9 kick himself. Besides being a music director in Costa Mesa, he is also one in Costa Rica, where he serves as principal conductor of the country's National Symphony Orchestra. He closed that orchestra's 2022 season with the 9th, Next, on January 27, St. Clever once more conduct the ninth with the USC Thornton Symphony, of which he will also he is also the principal conductor. The Pacific Symphony performance offered an entirely different perspective on Mahler. St. Clair introduced the symphony by describing it as a voyage of suffering, from realization to reflection to rejoicing in life to resignation. He led it not from inside Mahler, but rather as an outside observer, showing us how Mahler felt rather than having us feel how the great composer uh, felt. This was a forceful performance. The sound had power. The climaxes were explosive. The instrumental solos in the L.A. Phil pervade a wonderful sense of freedom within a whole. The, synth uh, the Pacific Symphony impressed by how its solos stood out so, uh, the Pacific Symphony impressed by how its solo stood out. Everything was theater. The middle two movements full of lively uh, dances in the first and carnival-esque burlesque in the second became orchest orchestral showpieces. By placing a large video screen over the stage, the Pacific Symphony added close-ups of the players and conductor, further adding to the theatrics. At the end, the camera stayed on St. Clair for a full minute of silence its face contorted in grief, taking in the sheer momentousness of what has happened, holding off the applause. The sentimentality worked, stopping just short of becoming Malden. This was a shattering performance that then came to a distinct end. We could then go back out into the rain. Tilson Thomas didn't speak to the audience. While St. Clair's heart was comfortably and even impressively on his sleeve, there was no reading of Tilson Thomas' mind, as he himself is suffering, as Mahler was, when riding the ninth from a life-threatening disease. At the end, he simply stopped. No dramatic moment of silence, nothing more to say. No sentimentality. The universe continues on with its own business. All that was left was for Tilson Thomas to show his warm appreciation of the orchestra, which had played with what can only be called love. That the warmth carried over to an awestruck audience, there was hardly an empty seat, was unmistakable. In the end, Tilson Thomas's once-in-a-lifetime ninth on Sunday afternoon was in a class and in a place of its own. In Judaism, it would be called for those who 
who heard it, who heard it, and those who played, and those who will hear it in the future. Microphones hung over a stage, a mitzvah, divine, a divine good deed. That was New Depths from Mahler's Ninth by Mark Swed, music critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 19, 2023. Right, this last one is a movie review from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 20th, 2023. Stuck between social satire and sensitive indie. Jesse Eisenberg's writer-director debut feels unfinished, but it has its moments. By Robert Abel. 17 years after playing the mixed-up teenager to a deluded parent and a fragile family for Noah Baumbach in The Squid and the Whale, Jesse Eisenberg has crafted his own comically pointed version of this neurotic ecosystem with his feature writing directing debut when you finish saving the world. Adapting a scenario from a podcast drama of the same name that he wrote for Audible, which ran during the pandemic, Eisenberg takes us inside the sardonic snappish relationship between an activist mother, Julianne Moore, and her personally ambitious son, Finn Wolfhard, neither of whom can hide their disappointment in each other when they cross paths under the same roof. Rounding up this tense home is J.O. Sanders as the go-along-to-get-along dad who, at one point, calls his housemates in a moment of understandable frustration a couple of narcissists. Wolfhart's lanky high schooler Ziggy is laser-focused on his internet fame as a singer-songwriter of plaintive a plain tip teen sappy folk rock tunes that he live streams from his bedroom to adoring fans. The irony, of course, befitting his social media driven existence is that for someone with 20,000 followers from all over the world, information he's quick to drop on anyone he meets, local popularity remains non existent. That's probably because of Ziggy's self absorbed neediness in ev the everyday is as noticeable as the guitar case always with him. His mother, Evelyn Moore, meanwhile, patiently devotes her days to running a domestic violence shelter she founded, but carries a brittle, joyless office demeanor that leads one staffer to respond to her forced smile, small talk with a nervous, Are you firing me? Evelyn's own connected but lonely dilemma, she's obvious to realize her son is dealing with this too, is that for all that's rewarding and what she does for the women in her care, Ziggy is the life she can't shake uh, feeling is a failed project. How did the son she took to marches and taught protest songs become a shallow website busker? Eisenberg's comic sensibility, not terribly far off from Baumbach's, which itself over owed something to Woody Allen, is to give Ziggy and Evelyn parallel obsessions of amusing cringeworthiness that reflect how blind they are to needing each other. Ziggy burns to impress a poetry-writing incandescently small social justice warrior classmate, Alicia Bow, an Oedipal-adjacent crush project that requires an interest in politics he'd rather shortcut to exploit than think of as a whole in his learning. And when Evelyn meets Kyle, Billy Burke, the thoughtful, working-class teenage son of one of the shelter's newest boarders, a surrogate mother opportunity bubbles to the surface that, in its overreach, she's helpless to suppress. As these scenarios play out, though, 
In the cool autumn grain of Benjamin Loeb's 16mm cinematography and over an Emil Mosuri score that fills the non-digetic holes between Ziggy's songs, Evelyn's comic classical with wheezing electronic-sounding motifs, the wincingly funny competes uh, with awkwardly with emo the emotional framework. It's a problem Eisenberg will inevitably get better at the more he writes and directs movies with these types of thematically complicated characters. But for now, it feels like a story caught between the uh, punishing bite of social satire and a sensitive indie. The actress helped to a point. Wolfhard, working a fine switch up from his Stranger Things duties, and the reliably intense more are entertainingly uh, severe when it comes to the Squirmeyer comedy, with Wolfhard's timing in moments acutely reminiscent of his writer-director's uh, more memorable portraits of narrow-minded arrogance. Neither he nor Moore are given a lot of opportunity, however, to see the subterranean stuff ultimately required to sell Eisenberg's epiphany gear shift at the end. As a micro-case study about some acutely flawed 21st century strivers, when you finish saving the world has its well-turned moments, but when you want it to be gloriously messy about families and human interactions, it stays resolutely in lab mode. That was stuck between social satire and sensitive indie for Robert Abiel from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 20, 2023. It's called When You Finish Saving the World, Rated R for Language, 1 hour 28 minutes, playing at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles. Alright, so now let's start reading some articles from the Jewish Journal for January 20th to the 26th, 2023. <clears throat> and we start off with the editor's notes section. And this is called Can Thinking Make a Comeback by David Suiza. Human beings are the only species who can think about thinking. Animals can think instinctively to satisfy their appetites, but humans are blessed with the ability to reflect on the very art of reflecting as I am doing right now. It's hard to imagine a more urgent time to consider the act of thinking at a moment when deep thought is decidedly under siege. On social media, we're encouraged not to think but to react to peek like little birds at our likes and dislikes. In politics, we're way past the point of honoring deep thought, hypnotized as we are by the lust to crush our political rivals by any means necessary. And in academia, that supposed bastion of free thought and open inquiry, we're encouraged to think only to the extent that our thoughts will conform with the progressive dogma that has hijacked so much of our culture. The shaping of campus political theoretic happens primarily through exclusion and drowning out different voices, sophomore Darren Chang wrote in the Cornell Daily Sun as far back as 2018. Students who bring positions that don't fit with the primary narrative of liberal progressivism are shouted down and insulted as if their background and political orientation should be rejected prima facie. Of course, since Cheng wrote that op-ed, things have gotten progressively worse. Thinking for yourself has never been easy, but the question of whether it is still possible at all is some, uh, is some of is of some moment. Professor uh, philosophy professor Michael 
Ignatieff wrote in this month in a must-read essay in Liberty's Journal. The key ideals of liberal democracy, more independence, and intellectual autonomy depend on it, and my students will not have much experience of either if they end up living in a culture where all of their political and cultural opinions must express tribal allegiance to one of two partisan alternatives. Where they live in communities uh, so segregated by education, class, and race that they never encounter a challenge to their tribe's received ideas, or in a society where the wells of information are so polluted that pretty well everything they read is fake news. The crux of the problem is that if we use our minds so, uh, solely to serve an ideology, an ambition, or an appetite, there's really no need to engage in deep thought, especially if that thought may lead to truths that will disrupt the bomb of our certitude and introduce that dreaded enemy called doubt. It's disheartening to think that human nature may partly explain this aversion to reflection, but Judaism as we know it calls on us to do the hard work of transcending our natures in favor of high, higher ideals, such as the search for truth. That's why the Jewish community, whether right or left, religious or not, should be particularly concerned with the postmodern assault on the ancient art of thinking. If any act describes our tradition, it would be the act of asking questions, of turning and turning ideas into the constant search for deeper truths. This art of asking questions lies at the, heat, at the heart of Thinking Critically in College, the essential handbook for student success, a new book by Lewis Newman and the subject of our cover story this week. Newman, longtime dean of academic advising and associate vice provost for undergraduate education at Stanford University, takes a non-ideological pragmatic approach to the discipline of critical thinking. Instead of bemoaning issues like groupthink, he prefers to lay out practical advice for cultural for cultivating better living habits, better learning habits, habits that he argues colleges are failing to provide. As he writes, Colleges promise to teach skills that endure long after specific facts fade, but they aren't delivering on their promise. According to a 2019 study from the Society for Human Resource Management, nearly two-thirds of employers surveyed indicated that it was difficult to find college grads with adequate critical thinking skills. The value of Newman's approach is that he takes critical thinking so seriously that he virtually turns it into a discipline of its own, like a carpentry class with rules and tools. All students need explicit instruction in these academic tools of the trade, he writes. Students will not become effective learners and rigorous thinkers by osmosis. If fac faculty aren't highlighting these habits of mind, students are unlikely to acquire them independently. If I were head of a school, Jewish or otherwise, high school or college, I would seriously consider using Newman's handbook to shape a mandatory class on critical thinking. It would probably be the only instruction these students would ever get on this quintessential human activity that we are so often taking for granted. Considering that our thoughts permeate every aspect of our lives and that the world around us is pushing us further and further away from that activity, it's hard to think of a more critical class. That was Can Thinking Make a Comeback by David Suisa from the Editor's Notes section. 
All right, we go into the colonist section. This is called Loneliness is a Disease and Judaism Has a Cure by Tabby Raphael. Nearly a decade ago, while staying with my then 29-year-old cousin in Tel Aviv, I noticed something extraordinary. Several times a week, my cousin's friend would each stop by unannounced, buzz from the downstairs apartment gate and declare I was in the neighborhood and thought I'd say hi. My cousin and her friends would enjoy a cup of tea or a snack and simply connect in person with one with one another. Sometimes it lasted a few minutes, sometimes more. As an Angelino, I rarely have this experience. In LA, which spans over 500 square miles, dropping by a friend's home is, path is pathetically complicated, if not downright impossible. There are too many logistics and too many traffic considerations. If a friend who lives in Santa Monica decides to drop in unexpectedly to see me in Pico Robertson, she should arrive by 1 p.m. and head back no later than 2 p.m. to avoid maddening traffic. Yes, in L.A., we more or less have one decent traffic-free hour during daytime to plan, to plan visits with friends, and even then, we'd rather spend that hour alone, scrolling social media. But there's something that ravages our health, even more than poor diet, lack of sleep, or not enough exercise. Loneliness. Loneliness kills. It's even known to increase the risk of Alzheimer's, diabetes, and depression. And when it comes to loneliness, researchers are asking why Americans are spending less and less time in person with friends. A May 2021 American Prospective Survey report titled The State of American Friendship, Ch uh, Change, Challenges, and Losses found that Americans are spending less time in person with friends than ever before. And they also reported, also reported having fewer close friendships than they once did, talking to their friends less often and relying less on uh, their friends for personal support. It's tempting to blame the social isolation wreaked by the pandemic. But that doesn't explain the fact that the number of Americans who made time to see friends in person was declining before COVID-19. In fact, that number actually increased slightly in 2020. There's going to be something, there's got to be something more to this. Why are Americans seeing fewer friends in person and reporting more feelings of loneliness? The simple answer is that social media, with its ability to connect us with thousands of others, has created an illusion of friendship that's fooled many of us. I may not have actually seen a particular friend in person in four years, but I see my friend nearly each day through her social media posts. And there are other close, uh, closer friends whom I text once or twice a week. Isn't that enough? As it turns out, Turning to social media as a way to curb loneliness and deepen friendships is a facade. It's 2023, and many of us are so parched from loneliness that it almost seems like we're fasting. Our solution? To constantly quench our deep thirst with sips of soda, social media, rather than gallons of water, in-person connections. Commenting on a friend's picture doesn't quell our loneliness. Sharing a friend's post isn't a conversation. Yes, seeing friends in person can be an inconvenience, but in building and maintenance connections, there's simply no substitute for it. The Torah recounts that God initially created a single person, in essence, a lonely being. But according to Genesis, and God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper opposite him. Genesis 2.18 
but what happens when we're virtually digitally surrounded by thousands and still feeling alone? Amazingly, Judaism has a built-in antidote to loneliness. It's called the miracle of Shabbat. I'm referring specifically to attending a Shabbat meal, one of the last guaranteed ways to see friends on a weekly basis. Imagine a built-in system that ensures that you see at least one or two friends a week, each week for an entire year, and for Jews who observe the laws of Shabbat, that your phones are nowhere in sight during the entire interaction. A Shabbat meal with, friend, with a few friends, whether we're hosts or guests, also offers an anecdote to the majority of excuses we offer when explaining why we don't make time to see friends in person. If your friends are inaccessible, a Shabbat dinner or lunch invite is hard to turn down. Simply put, everyone has to eat, and who would turn down a warm meal at a friend's home? A Shabbat meal also solves parents' problems of feeling that they have to choose between their friends and their children on weekends. During a Shabbat meal, parents can spend time with both their kids and their friends, and as an added perk, kids have more chances to become socialized with other children and to associate Shabbat with fun and friendship. Of course, anyone who's ever tried to rein in their younger kids during a Shabbat meal knows it's impossible to give equal time to friends at the table. But again, there's no substitution for seeing friends in person, even if you're changing a diaper and pulling a copious amount of colant out of your hair. I believe it's important for children to see that their parents have friends. It's worth asking if your child sees you in the presence of your phone more than in the presence of other people, including your partner. If you're concerned that hosting is too hard, order a few takeout items from the supermarket or host a potluck meal. If you're not receiving enough invitations for a Shabbat meal, there's a solution for that as well. It will take a little courage, but write a post on social media or in a group that uh, group chat and make it cute. Extremely interesting young woman, you would love to be hosting for Shabbat lunch this week. We'll bring as much wine as needed. Text a friend and ask if he or she is hosting soon. In the worst case, the answer will simply be not this week, but your friend will hopefully have you in mind for a meal in the near future. Recently. One of my friends posted in a group chat, would like to host a couple uh, and their two adorable children for Shabbat lunch this week. We'll bring de dessert and wipe all hands and noses before entry. That, that kind of vulnerability touched my heart and I invited them right away. Before I was married, I spent many Shabbat lunches at home by myself because I wrongly believed that in order to host a, a good Shabbat meal, I needed to invite dozens of people. But that was too hard to manage. In hindsight, I should have invited at least one friend over. It doesn't take more than that to retrieve to relieve, relieve loneliness. In January, we may rush to commit to healthier habits, including a near ubiquitous commitment to lose weight. With just one meal a week with a friend on Shabbat, we could take a break from focusing on what we'd like to lose and open our eyes to everything we want to gain. That was Loneliness is a Disease and Judaism Has a Cure by Tabby Raphael from the Columnist section. Tabby Raphael is an award-winning LA-based writer, speaker, and civic action activist. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Tebby Raphael. All right, here's another columnist. Biden's Fumble by Dan Schnur. 
Joe Biden's new year seemed to be getting off to such a good start. The Democrats better than expected showing in the November elections has quieted talk of a primary challenge to his re-election bid. The brawl among House Republicans to determine their new leader had created a contrast that elevated him in the eyes of voters and he had begun to stake out centrist turf on immigration and other policy matters to position himself for the 2024 campaign. But that was before the disclosure and subsequent controversy surrounding the classified documents from his vice presidency that have turned up in non-secured locations. The Fuhrer will create all sorts of political problems for the president at just at the time when it appeared that he was developing some post-midterm momentum and he was establishing himself as a grown-up alternative to what many swing voters saw as disorganized and feckless GOP House revolutionaries. Biden's advisors have worked hard to highlight the distinctions between the president's situation and that of his predecessor, who left the White House with a trove of sensitive information last January. Donald Trump had retained his possession a much, in his possession a much larger number of documents at Mar-a-Lago Mar than uh, Biden had in his possession, and Biden has been much more cooperative in his dealings with legal authorities once the information was discovered. But Republicans have adroitly seized on the parallels between the two men. An ongoing debate about the specifics of the two situations does Biden no favors. It overshadows his message about the economy, Ukraine, and other topics that work to his benefit. Instead, the controversy traps him in an ongoing argument in which his <clears throat> strongest argument is that he was less irresponsible than Trump. The greatest damage caused by this uproar is that it undermines the central premise of Biden's presidency. In a country that is essentially divided ideologically and politically, Biden's most important promise in the 2020 campaign was his intention of restoring normalcy to the White House and to the country. Voters who were fatigued, frustrated, and or embarrassed by Trump's antics could be reassured that Biden would restore a missing dignity to the Oval Office. Biden's core argument was one of competence. The hardcore Trump voters didn't care. They were excited by their hero's combative and politically incorrect manner. But the voters who decided elections ultimately turned to Biden less out of ideological conviction than a need for reliability and reassurance that adults would be in charge of the country again. They wanted a president with the experience and the maturity to lead the nation forward in a less disruptive and dangerous way. So it was not a coincidence that Biden's first significant nosedive in the polls took place immediately following his administration's botched withdrawal from Afghanistan during the his first summer in office. Even though most Americans agreed with the president's decision to leave, the manner in which the departure of U.S. troops was handled and the subsequent mass bloodshed caused this country's voters to question whether Biden's years in government had actually prepared him for the challenges of the presidency. While the easing of inflation along with Trump's ongoing controversies has been the biggest contributor to Biden's improved standing, his successful handling of the war in Ukraine has been, a, has been of huge importance in restoring his credibility and confidence in the eyes of the voters. Now that hard-earned reputation might be slipping away again, Biden has been greatly helped by the ongoing contrast that Trump provides him. But the news coverage of the January 6th investigations has subsidized, at least for the time being, and the uproar over the Mar-a-Lago documents has been neutralized. 
So that advantage is murkier than it was in either 2020 or 2022. Biden and his team need to figure out a way to get this behind them, and fast. But that is beginning to look less and less likely. Trump has rescued Biden before, and he can certainly do it again. Right now, though, it appears that Biden is the one throwing a life preserver to his old nemesis, not the other way around. That was Biden's fumble by Dan Schnur from the columnist section. Dan Schnur is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. Join Dan for his weekly webinar, Politics in the Time of Coronavirus, www.lawac.org, on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. All right, here's something else from the columnist section, Marching Like a Mensch by Rabbi Yoshi Zwellback. With Parasha Shemot, we begin the book of Exodus, our people's national origin story. Commentators notice that a key Hebrew root of this parasha is ra'ah, to see. When Moses is born, premature according to tradition, his mother, Yocheved, looks at him carefully to see that he is healthy and whole. Pharaoh's daughter sees that the baby is crying. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house, a member of the royal family. One day, his eyes are opened to the suffering around him, and he sees the plight of the Israelite slaves. He sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Israelite and seeing no one about, he comes to the slaves' defense, killing the Egyptian. Moses flees to the desert, and there he sees the bush burning, unconsumed. There is a lot of seeing, noticing, and witnessing in this week's Torah portion. The incident that causes Moses to leave Pharaoh's house and truly begin his journey of liberation for his people is suggestive. It is the first detail we read about Moses the man. Up to this point, we have read only about Moses the baby, rescued and then adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. The narrative skips forward in time. Sometime after that, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his kinsfolk and witnessed their labors. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen. He turned this away. He turned this way and then, this way and that, and seeing no one about, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Exodus 2:11 to 12. One commentator suggests that the use of the word Ehav, kinsman, means that Moses somehow knew he was an Israelite. Perhaps Pharaoh's daughter had told him, or maybe it was whispered about the palace. Now he sees the oppression of his people with his own eyes. What happens next is particularly relevant to this moment in our American calendar. Moses looks around and, as the text has it, saw that there was no one about Vayar kin ein eish. This could mean that there were literally no other people around, save for the Egyptian taskmaster, the Israelite slave, and Moses. Rather than reading the phrase as Moses looking around to be sure he would not be seen by anybody who could report his, on his actions, one teacher reads that the phrase le, uh, less literally. This was in the middle of a workday, so there were probably many others about. But there was no one there who was willing to be a mensch, a human being guided by compassion, ready to stand up in the face of oppression. Moses had to be that mensch. He had to be the one to come to the aid of all the most vulnerable, the aid of the most vulnerable. Last weekend we celebrated that type of leadership as we remembered Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
Wednesday marked the 50th yard side of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great intellectual, spiritual, and moral leader who stood arm-in-arm -arm with Dr. King many times and who famously said that he was praying with his feet when he marched in Selma, protesting against the injustice and oppression of segregation. When we see injustice, when we witness oppression, we are called upon to be menshen, women and men of integrity, compassion, and goodness. A parasha calls us to open our eyes so that we might see what needs uh, fixing in our broken world. And once we have identified what needs repair, we, like Moses, Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter, like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, like Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and so many others, must stand up and take action. That was Marching Like a Mensch by Rabbi Yoshi Zwellbach from the Columnist section. Rabbi Yoshi Zwellbach is the senior rabbi of Stephen Weiss Temple in Los Angeles. Okay, here's something else from the Columnist section. Top 10 Ways to Stay Healthy in 2023 by Daniel Stone. Congrats, pandemic survivor. With renewed appreciation for your future existence, why not consider 2023 and beyond? As COVID wanes, it's time to revisit, it's time to ba visit basic non-COVID health issues. I occasionally give health talks. I offer a reminder that the purpose of life is not to stay healthy. Health remains a means to an end, empowering us to fulfill life's purposes. We should attend to the basics and move on. I usually offer my top 10 list of relatively easy steps to optimize health. Here's the current edition. 1. Eat a balanced diet with emphasis on fruits and vegetables. 2. Maintain appropriate body weight. 3. Avoid cigarette smoking, excessive alcohol, or other substance abuse. 4. Avoid unprotected promiscuous sexual activity. 5. Get periodic medical evaluations and standard preventive care, including vaccinations, mammography, and colonoscopy. 6. Limit sun exposure. 7. Get routine dental care. 8. Stay physically active. 9. Stay interpersonally connected. 10. Wake up with a purpose. That's it. Stay true to these top 10 and you're most li more, li more likely to thrive. Is it possible to get partial credit? Absolutely. 7 to 9 may work well depending upon the ones you, you de-emphasize. Uh, the, the top 10 list is about the power of habits. Over time, good habits can create a positive personal health trajectory without excessive time expenditure. In contrast, bad habits damage health insidiously. Take smoking, still the common habit most corrosive to health. Some of my, my patients smoke half a pack, 10, daily. Comparing themselves to one or two pack day uh, smokers, they consider their habit light. I remind them that health effects aren't, uh, aren't about daily use. They need to consider the 3,500 cigarettes per year or 35,000 per decade on their horizon. How will the carcinogens in 100,000 cigarettes affect the chance of surviving three decades? The same habit calculus applies to mild vice like soft drinks. A 150 calorie drink means, that, uh, means almost nothing as one off. But drink it every day for a month and it's 4,500 calories, well over the 3,500 that puts on extra pound, on an extra pound. One a day for a year, over 50 pounds. 15. Over years of practice 
I've seen good health habits translate into longer, more productive lives. But one caveat, not always. So the pursuit of happiness justifies some hedging. Is moderate alcohol a completely harmless choice? Perhaps not, but it's also not catastrophic. As one of my medical school professors noted, one out of one dies of something. Overall, when being with one's life, when betting with one's life, like personal investing and other matters of chance, it's sensible to focus mainly on the big pictures. Additionally, expert opinion, seemingly out of fashion in the COVID era, deserves consideration. Unfortunately, no 2023 health review would be complete without at least a mention of COVID-19. I still have about one patient per day newly diagnosed with the virus. Fortunately, most are vaccinated and do well with little risk of hospitalization or death. The new bivalent two-strain booster is safe and effective. If you're vaccinated with it, you'll be less likely to get sick. If you do get sick, the illness would likely be milder. If that seems threatening or inconvenient, be prepared to have your winter interrupted by an unpleasant febrile illness. Not surprisingly, influenza also causes flu-like symptoms. In a typical season, flu vaccines reduce risk of the illness by around 60%. That's not bad for a mild vaccine that typically causes only a mild sore arm for about half a day. And thousands of people, mostly seniors, still die from flu every year. So getting a flu vaccine should also be a no-brainer. Fortunately, we also have the COVID drug Paxlovid, which uh, works reasonably well. Although it has some important drug interaction issues, it has only minor side effects. For flu, Tamiflu remains modestly helpful. Once you're fully vaccinated and caught up with the top 10, what about life's purpose? On that subject, doctors like myself have less to offer. It's like asking your mechanic where you should drive your car. If you went to Yom Kippur services this year, I'd suggest a three-month check on your progress. Try to help someone else. Pick a project. Whatever you do, don't spend too much time and effort on health. Just stick to the top 10, then go chase some rainbows. That was Top 10 Ways to Stay Healthy in 2023 by Daniel Stone from the Columnist section. Daniel Stone is a regional medical director of Cedar sinai Valley uh, Network and a practicing internist and geriatrician with Cedar sinai Medical Group. The views expressed in this column do not necessarily reflect those of Cedar sinai all right, and also from the columnist section, keep, keep, keep Reading to Your Older Kids by Judy Gruen. Among my most cherished memories of raising our kids are the incalculable hours I spent reading aloud to them, not just during the toddler and early childhood years with endless recitations of Dr. Seuss's books, Goodnight Moon, and the Berenstein Bears. I thought I enjoyed those immensely, though I enjoyed those immensely, I kept reading to our kids till they were old as 12. They loved it, and so did I. Reading with them provided time to bond, cuddle, and talk. They grew to love reading as their vocabularies expanded and attention spans grew. We'd sometimes make it a bit of theater out of it, with each of us reading the lines of various characters from Charlotte's Web, Henry and the Clubhouse, or from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweller. These books are wonderful classics. Try them and see if your kids don't love them also. We also read plenty of Jewish books, including junior parasha readings as well as novels. 
As the kids became tweens, we dipped into Harry Potter, but without some wizardry. I feared that they all have driver's licenses if we read to the end. We didn't. When I texted my daughter, Yale, to ask if she had any special memories of those evenings reading together, she replied, yes, absolutely. I remember that you sat on the floor and leaned against my bed and read whatever I wanted you to read to me, she told me on the phone. It was soothing, knowing that was how I was going to end my day at bedtime. It wasn't just about the reading. You were making time for me. I was priority. I was the priority. I really looked forward to our reading time. I was sad when you had to go out and couldn't read to me. Yale is now a learning specialist in a private school in Dallas with a master's degree in teaching and training in dyslexia language therapy. She encourages parents of her students to read to their children because research shows that skill in reading needs to be developed between the ages of five and nine, she explained. There is tremendous value in spending time reading to your children. It will encourage their, kid, encourage their becoming lifelong readers. And unless a kid is a natural reader, having a parent read to them can help them discover the kinds of stories they like. Yale added that for any kids who have language-based learning differences, reading on their own may, uh, may not be something they are ever comfortable with, but reading to them is one of the greatest things you can do. Even my 8th grade students love it when I read stories to them in class. However important it, I felt it was for me to read to my independent readers back in the day, as one of my sons likes to say, I think it's urgently needed now. Our phones and other digital devices are separating us from one another. Too many kids are going to bed with an iPhone instead of a book. Educators are desperately trying to cope with the disastrous fallout of kids' much shorter attention spans and spiking anxiety levels, problems that researchers consistently link to kids in isolation focused on a screen. The good news is that these issues can begin to be healed through real FaceTime when parents and children share the magic of storytelling. This activity can help kids feel attached to you and safe with you just when you might begin to feel them slipping away. Reading with your kids also gives them a chance to ask questions about what they're reading, or, in fact, about anything at all they might be, that might be on their minds when they are relaxed enough to pop out with it. These are golden opportunities to have meaningful conversations with your children. In a time of high anxiety for so many kids, taking the time to park your phone in another room and park yourself next to your child and read and talk is an investment that will pay huge dividends while creating beautiful memories that you both will always treasure. There was Keep Reading to Your Older Kids by Judy Gruen from the Colonist section. Judy Gruen's most recent book is The Skeptic and the Rabbi Falling in Love with Faith. Alright, and now we go to the My Turn section, Learning the Truth About the Court by Rabbi David Elezri. It was a remarkable educational moment with regard to the truly true reality of Israel's Supreme Court. Just a few months after completing her tenure as the president of the court, the Honorable Dorit Benish paid a visit to California. I was a part of a small group of rabbis from across the community the local Israeli consulate invited to meet with her. With not many other rabbis in attendance, it presented an opportunity for a personal interaction. After the formal presentation, I approached the justice quietly asking her, why did you invalidate the Tal law? Some years earlier, 
Zivi Tal, a distinguished Orthodox Israeli Supreme Court justice, crafted the Tal Law. Like many laws, it was a political compromise, attempting to find a middle ground in the continuous issue of yeshiva students serving in the IDF by creating an avenue to mainstream more students to the army and work. During the last months of her tenure as president of the court, chief justice in the American par par parlance, Benish led the court in invalidating the Tal Law. This pushed Israel into a major political conflict and was a catalyst for the fall of the government. Officially, the court invalidated the law based on their version of equality, an ideal that is lofty but not always wise. The ruling was a result of a left-wing group who argued that it was not fair that some serve in the IDF and others do not. While this is a persuasive argument, the real question is how do we create social change in the Haredi community? Well, the sledgehammer of justice uh, of the judicial flat set back the goal of integration? If you follow the numbers, that is exactly what has happened since the Benish ruling. Fewer Haredim are joining the army. Personally, I attended a Chabad yeshiva that supported serving in the IDF. The majority of students received deferments during their stu uh, studies and then joined the army later. I wondered what kind of legal reasoning Justice Benish would give me. I was astonished with her simplistic yet telling answer. We made the ruling because it was not working. In other words, according to her assessment, the Tal law was not successful in creating a larger integration of yeshiva students to the army and society, so she struck it down. I remained stoic, respectful, not revealing my astonishment. In a moment of emotional uh, honesty, she had revealed her inner thoughts. She didn't like what was going on. Yeshiva students were not moving fast enough along the road to participating in the army or working. She was going to give them a push. There is a place for this kind of assessment in a democracy, but it's in the Knesset. While I said nothing, I recall the words of the U.S. Supreme Court Justice uh, that, uh, that I had once heard. It is not our job to change the law. If you want to, cross the street and have Congress vote a new law. In Washington, the Supreme Court and the Congress are just across the street. The same is, set, is true in Jerusalem. The role of the legislative body is to deliberate, find compromise, and solutions. The role of the court is to evaluate if the legislature has acted callously or trampled on the rights of another or broken the law. If Anish would have given me a legal argument, then one could evalu evaluate if it had merit or not. But a true reason for the ruling had nothing to do with law. It was not working. I wondered why Benish didn't resign her position in the court and run for the Knesset. Israelis have been watching the courts slide from being a bastion of justice to a culture of leftist legal supremacy. The seeds of the present crisis go back to the original establishment of the court when Justice Minister Pinchas Rosen blocked the appointment of Gad Frumkin. He had been the longest serving jurist in Palestine and a member of the British Mandate Supreme Court. Rosen rejected him because he was not a Mapai Labor Party supporter. Ever since then, it's been one friend brings another until Aaron Barak. He propelled the court to a point where leftist activism is its culture. Yes, there will be token religious or conservative justices like Zivi, Tal, and Menachem Alon. Both are confided to me in separate conversations that they feel at odds with dominant ideology in the court. The court has seized powers never given to it by law. 
Causes can be cases can be brought if you have standing or a relevance to the case. The court has used the concept of reasonableness. In other words, we don't think that's a good idea. Then ordered government ministries to change their policies or even dictate to the military because the justices on the court thought they were a better judge of policy. No American court uses these guidelines. Clearly, it's a case of judicial overreach. Judaico reform is essential for Israel to remain a vibrant democracy. Just one segment of society, the liberal elites, cannot continue to impose their worldview. They claim that modifying the present legal system will endanger democracy, which is just a way of saying the law must be my way or otherwise it's not a democracy. One also has to wonder why some U.S. liberal Jewish groups have been lobbying against any reform. Would they agree with a U.S. court that, that, operating one like, uh, like, uh, that operate like one in Israel? Would they support the conservative-leaning U.S. Supreme Court selecting its successors? The Israeli justices have used the court repeatedly to impose their beliefs on Israeli society. When the city of Afula decided that just one of the many concerns uh, they fund will be for Haredim with separate seating, the new Israel fund supported the seating supported the case to ban it. NIF and similar groups have skillfully brought many of brought many cases using judicial fiat to enforce their views. With a balanced court, they will be challenging. That will be challenging. Are they really concerned for democracy or do they want to protect the court so it can advance their political goals that they cannot win in the ballot box? This issue must be approached with delicacy and serious deliberation. Clearly, the methodology of selection judges must be modified. The court should only judge cases where the litigants have standing. While consideration should be made for an override clause, in my personal view, this should be carefully evaluated to ensure that it not be abused. Judicial reform is essential in Israel, but it may be done with careful deliberation. A scalpel is needed, not an axe. A society with people of diverse viewpoints, as we know most Israelis have strong opinions, must find a way to coexist. That comes with political compromise and respect for the person with whom you do not agree. As the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Joseph Isaac Schneerson, wrote to a group of yeshiva students, you should spread Judaism in a way of peace. You should see the good in another and the weakness of your, in yourself. At the same time, a fair court is essential to help the society strike that balance and must be a lighthouse of justice and even-handedness to ensure the rights of all Israelis despite their differences. That was Learning the Truth About the Court by Rabbi David Eliziri from the My Turn section. Rabbi David Eliziri is the president of the Rabbinical Council of Orange County. His email is rabbi at ocjewish.com. Okay, also from the My Turn section, Bibi, the New King of the Israeli Left by Matthew Schultz. The left hates Bibi. It's as true today as it was yesterday, but it may not be true tomorrow. There are stirrings of a new attitude toward Israel's controversial prime minister. People who saw him as the greatest threat to Israel's democracy now look at him as Israel's only hope. People who labeled him as an extremist now pray that he can prove to be a moderating force in Israeli politics. People who hated his corruption now have bigger worries on their mind. This is all because there is a new government in Jerusalem. It's loaded up with ministers from the 
Kahanist Jewish Power Party and the anti-LGBT Noam Party. It wants to hamstring the Supreme Court, build more settlements, and bring immigration law into alignment with strict Jewish law. As a result, the Bibi, the boogeyman of the left, suddenly doesn't look so sad. The Jerusalem Post writes, Netanyahu must defend democracy from his coalition partners. The Jewish Journal asks, Will Bibi be Israel's savior? Countless articles suggest that Bibi will be the so-called adult in the room, keeping his coalition partners happy without actually letting them do too much damage. None of this makes much sense. Why should Bibi save Israel from a coalition he created? After all, he was the one who resurrected the far right. Why would anyone think he is any different from the rest of them? And yet here we are. And it's not just a hallucination. We can see it in action. Bibi himself is trying to be the adult in the room, or at least trying to be seen as one. He is urging Ben Givar to stay off the Temple Mount. He is reassuring the press that gay rights are safe. He is distinguishing himself from his new co-workers, especially Givar, Maus, and Smotrich. Looking at Netanyahu in comparison to the case of cast of characters, some on the left are wondering why we made such a fuss about him in the past. Something about a submarine deal, and ordering too much pistachio ice cream on the company credit card, or perhaps the scandal about the security detail for his bratty son. From where we currently stand, it all sounds like so much shituyat nonsense. And now some of us are asking why we didn't partner with him instead of trying to take him down. Why didn't we why didn't we do what we ultra orthodox parties have done? What the ultra orthodox parties should have done, which is to do business with him, training trading him job security in exchange for important ministries and good legislation. Perhaps this is what will happen next time around. It's possible that Bibi, exhausted from putting out PR files from his new coalition partners, might prefer to join forces with centrists like Lapid and Gantz. The left, tired of Bingiver's inflammatory rhetoric and policies, may embrace Bibi with open arms. Of course there will be those who will never stop hating him. There will be those who will remember that it wasn't Oz Shutoyat. He was guilty of incitement, of corruption, and of putting self before party and party before country. But there will also be those on the left who are happy to forgive and forget, just like we forgave and forget, forgot with Bennett. If anyone can recall, Naftali Bennett was once treated by the foreign press like Ben Givar himself, a far-right extremist settler who would destroy Israel's secular char character and democracy. Less than a decade later, he was heading up a center-left Jewish-Arab unity coalition. When the only important criteria on the table was anyone but Bibi, the left put aside its concerns about Bennett, and Bennett put aside his concerns about the left. The next time around, the only important criteria on the table might be anyone but Ben Giver. If that's the case, we might just find ourselves crowning Bibi king of the left. That was Bibi, New King of the Israeli Left by Matthew Schultz from the My Turn section. Matthew Schultz is the author of the essay collection, What Came Before, 2020. He is a rabbinical student at Hebrew College in Newton, Massachusetts. Here's something else from the My Turn section. 80,000 Israelis March Against Arrogance by David Suisa. If a hard-left majority coalition in Israel 
passed new laws to limit speech that offended the woke left or halted government funding of Haredi yeshivas and jailed any Haredi who refused to serve in the IDF or passed a legal overhaul designed to end a prime minister's criminal trial, would the right accept an explanation of tough luck we got elected and we have the power and authority to do this? Not likely. And would we see massive right-wing demonstrations across Israel? No doubt. They would they would be protesting the same thing that 80,000 Israelis protested last Saturday night in Tel Aviv, the arrogance of a majority. There are a few things I find more distasteful than political leaders who use their power to crush dissent and ram through fundamental changes without consideration of other viewpoints. I felt the same way when Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Perez rammed through the Oslo Accords in the early 90s and were certain that a murderer like Yasser Arafat could turn into a, fan of, a man of peace. That is arrogance. In its first few weeks, the new right-wing government in Israel has been a daily festival of arrogance. Day after day, with the endorsement, implicit or explicit, of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, we've witnessed the swift and looming introduction of radical shifts in government policies. No bipartisan committees, no long debates, just our way or the highway bureaucratic bulldozing that disregards the views of millions of Israelis. Even if one agrees with these new policies, bulldozing is not the way. It doesn't matter if you're right or left, religious or non-religious. This is about more than political ideology. It's about the blatant abuse of power. Uh, Bibi defenders like to argue that to the victors go the spoils. This new coalition, they remind us, was elected fair and square. So why can't they do what they were elected to do? Because, for one thing, there are legal limits that must be respected. If a government passes laws that undermine fundamental legal principles or the very character of the state, is that legal? If a left-wing government, for example, passed a law that allows every store to open on Shabbat, would that be legal or even permissible? You may think that allowing every store to open on Shabbat is a great idea, but still be against it because it would undermine the Jewish character of the state. The hard-right policies of this new government undermine both the Jewish and democratic character of Israel. By imposing an intolerant Haredi-style Judaism on the population, it undermines the pluralistic Zionist-style Judaism that balances the Jewish tradition with freedom of choice. And by coercing people into following Torah laws, power-hungry Haredi politicians create a backlash against Torah itself, oblivious to the reality that if you want to turn people away from religion, just impose it. In pushing its legal revolution, the new coalition wants a radical shift of power from the courts to the politicians. Among other things, it would give the Knesset, with a 61MK majority, the power to overturn high court rulings, give the coalition complete power to appoint high court judges, and make government legal advisors personal appointments of their ministers and block their ability to give binding legal opinions. There's a case to be made for reasonable legal reforms, but this heavy-handed, unilateral, and maximalist approach is not it. Perhaps the most succinct argument I've heard against this judicial overhaul is from Deputy Attorney General Gil Lyman. If he who writes the law also controls whether or not to abide by the law, controls the appointments of judges that deal with the judicial purview of his decisions, and is able to override their rulings when they are not to his liking, 
and practice is not actually subject to law. In this case, the government will not be even be above the law, it will be the law. In other words, these new laws have triggered such a backlash because they're not just laws, but laws about laws. Putting aside the hysterics, many measured and knowledgeable Israel lovers are genuinely concerned. We are at the beginning of a new era in which there is a new definition of democracy, retired High Court judge and president of the Movement for Quality Government in Israel, Ayala Prakashia, said at the rally Saturday night. Uh, not, uh, not a democracy based on values, but a truncated democracy that relies entirely on the will of the voter, which no longer gives any weight to other fundamental democratic values. Former President Reuven Rivlin, a longtime Likud right-winger, denounced the government's plan to restructure the legal system. This is not a spillover into the judiciary. This is a takeover of the judiciary, Rivlin said, advising compromise. One cannot legislate out of feelings of revenge or outside motives. I can understand hard-nosed ideologues who feel so strongly about their views that they see compromise as a deadly sin. I know several of them personally. Now that they are finally in a position of power, it's not surprising that they would want to use that power to push their policies through, regardless of what the rest of the country thinks. The one who is harder to forgive is Netanyahu, because he's a secular Jew who understands indispensable democratic values like religious pluralism and an independent court system to values that his own government is now undermining. I believe that a strong, independent court allows for the existence of all other institutions in a democracy, Netanyahu said in the speech in 2012. In places with no strong and independent court system, rights cannot be protected. Of course, this was before Bivy went on to trial for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Needless to say, the fear of ending up in jail makes it difficult to trust Bivy's motives as his government's judicial overhauls move forward. One wonders which coalition would win more seats if an election were held today. I would wager that it wouldn't be the right-wing coalition Israel has now. First, their turnout from alarmed opponents would be significantly higher, and second, there are probably more than a few liberal Likud voters who have a bad case of buyer's remorse from these first few weeks. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were there last Saturday night. That was 80,000 Israelis Marched Against Arrogance by David Suisa from the My Turn section. Now with the time that we have left, let's read some ads from this Jewish journal for January 20 to the 26, 2023. And we start with this one. Los Angeles Jewish Health is energizing senior life. The evolution of our name from the Los Angeles Jewish Home to Los Angeles Jewish Life reflects the full spectrum of our comprehensive, award-winning programs and services. Los Angeles Jewish Health has grown from a group of caring neighbors providing shelter to a leading nonprofit senior care organization. Our mission remains the same, to deliver excellence in senior care for all, rooted in Jewish values. With more than 100 years of trusted care, we meet you where you are in life to provide a customized experience that's right for you. Independent living, assisted living, senior behavioral health, short-term rehabilitation, skilled nursing, PACE, hospice and palliative care, nurse, nursing school, geriatric health, memory care. LAJ Health, Los Angeles Jewish Health. One call does it all. 855 
727-327-3745. Website is www.lajhealth.org. And we have this one. You don't need to walk far on Friday night to have a place in Eden. Women's Mikvah. The EdenProject.org slash Women's Mikvah. The Eden Project. Let's build to inspire. And here's this one. Survivors are passing. Holocaust distortion is growing. Who is teaching the next generation about the Holocaust? The Emile A. and Jenny Fisher Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies is educating the future. Please join us for a dinner honoring our founder, Emile Fish, March 15, 2023, Casa del Mar in Santa Monica. Sponsored by Yeshiva University, the Emile A. and the Jenny Fish Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies. For more information, contact Michael Kleiman at 646-592-4514 or by email at fishcenterdinner at yu.edu. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Keep it right here for everything happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, Israel, the nation, and the world. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.